0: Good morning, Nava family. How are you doing? It's good to be awake and alive. It's a bit of a uh, cloudy day, but we still have a view of the city downtown. I love that the Father's brought us not anywhere but to here in the middle of this city, in the middle of uh, economic district, in the middle of a new mayor in the city. Here we are gathered as a people of prayer and a people of presence. One a journey following the cloud. That's a term the Lord gave us to try to articulate what it would look like to do whatever Jesus says, to go wherever Jesus wants to go. And we wrestled for many months about, uh, before leaving our last building, what is the new wineskin God was speaking to us about? And we were trying to do all kinds of ecclesiological gymnastics, which means what form of the church should we take? And Finally, we just felt some peace land in our heart, that the new wineskin is a family fully surrendered to the Holy Spirit. I had a picture in worship this morning, and it was, uh, I'm not a hunter, but it was of a hunter with his dog, his hunting dog. And uh, the dog, whoa, the dog was pointing. Have you ever seen that picture? The dog points perfectly still and waits in full submission to its owner until the joy of the release. And then the dog gets to go. (laughs) But that dog is not, it does not move. It just waits and it points. And I began to imagine a church in Kansas City that was under perfect submission to the King Jesus that was waiting that would not move an inch until the joy of the release. Can you imagine your own life like that, or your own household? And we are following a cloud. We're learning to wait on the Lord, even to resist our own best ideas, to wait on God. My soul waits on God, everything within me. And so we're following a cloud, and we believe that he's making us a people. And I don't think a family fully surrendered to the Holy Spirit. Happens overnight. I think that's a patient process of him working in us. And I cried last time I spoke here because someone asked me this week, what's it like? You know, and they kind of feel bad for me a little bit. You know, what's it? What's it like? I'm so sorry. And I said, I stood up and I just cried because I'm with the people that's actually willing to do this. That just moves my heart. We're doing it. I don't know what we're doing, but we're doing it. And I think the father's really excited like that dog to the joy of the release. But just wait, 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 wait. We're following a cloud. We don't know where the Lord's leading. Sometimes it rests for a month or three or a day. We don't know, but we're Dependent on the Lord. We don't know where we'll be the first week of October. And our team's starting to feel like that's a long time. But you know what, guys? We're doing it, and we're doing it together. And that is the gift with the Lord. We're in this 40 days um, wilderness fast, and it's a beautiful image until you realize you were actually out in the wilderness. Looks nice on a screen, but... When you detach yourself from distractions, how many people like me have found their thumb moving towards social media icons before their brain can engage that they're on a 40-day fast? Yeah. I started a little liturgical prayer, let my heart run to you faster than my thumb to Instagram. <laughs> let my heart run to I'm not joking because I know where it is. It's two screens over in the top right and my heart mind, the pathways are so set that my thumb begins to move before my brain can say, wait, Adam, you're on a fast. But over the last 10 or 11 days, my thumb stopped wandering and my hearts began to wander more to him. It's a patient process. We're detaching ourselves from good things, from distractions, so we can connect ourselves to our family, to the Lord. I I want to testify that the culture of my family is changing over the last two weeks. We're spending time, more time listening to each other. We've eaten meals together, but after the meals, we usually after somewhat of a squabble, it's funny how this works, we drag ourselves into that prayer room and we sit quietly with a two minute timer and something happens as we sit there and then we learn to pray I'm so thankful that I'm a part of a people that's actually trying this. None of us are very good at it, but we're trying, right? It's just a beautiful thing. So we're going slower. Can you feel yourself slowing down? The point of these 40 days is to actually slow the pace and the rhythm of your life down to match the heartbeat of the Father. To sink your heart with his heart. To wait. To wait to be like that pointer dog, whatever image helps you. We talked a lot, I think, about slower, but I felt like this morning I was to bring the part about lower. That can be kind of a, I don't know, nebulous word. What does it mean to go lower? The word humility comes to mind. But there was a, there was a story in the scripture that was really standing out to me. And if I could give sort of a warning before the story, I think it's one of the most heart-wrenching stories in the gospel. It's, it's kind of caught me in a, in a way of just, oh. Have you ever been reading through the scripture and then the, a story catches you and you just, I don't know, how to I just have to make the noise. It's like, ah. Oh that one hurts or that one kind of gets hold of you. So that's my warning before I tell the story. It's a heart-wrenching story, but I believe it starts to open up the book a little bit on lower. We've committed to go not just slower, but lower. He must increase. And as he does, I must decrease. Not the beautiful parts of me, not the parts God created, but all the parts must fall away <laughs> that, are, that were never of him in the first place. And there's this posture in the kingdom called lower, and it's the posture that throughout all of scripture, God seems to be irresistibly attracted to. God somehow loves this posture called lower. Lower. So the story is the story of a, of a rich young ruler. Jesus and his friends set out. Now I'm going I'm to tell this story and I want to invite you not into the details for a second but to let sort of the big, the big thrust of the story to impact your heart. And I'm just going to tell it And I want to tell it in a prayerful way so that not listening with our heads right now, but listening with our hearts. Can we do that together? And I'm going to trust that as I share the story, somehow by the Holy Spirit, maybe you'll find yourself in the story in a way that not only impacts your mind, but impacts your emotions. Jesus set out on a journey. And it says a young man ran up to him eagerly and fell on his knees. His posture physically became lower. And he said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus looked down at him and said, why do you call me good? God alone is good. But you know the commandments do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness and lie, do not defraud honor your father and mother. The young man looked up at Jesus and said, oh, all these I've done since I was a youth. And then it says Jesus looked at him and loved him. Jesus looked at him and loved him. Jesus looked at him and loved him. He loved him. When he looked at him, he loved him. Have you looked into his eyes and seen he loves you? Jesus looked at this young man, so vulnerable, right below him, and he loved him. And then he said, This one thing, you lack. Go. Sell all your possessions. (laughs) Give them to the poor. And then come and follow me, as he looks at all of his ragtag crew. Come and follow me. Says the young man hung his head And lost his heart and walked away filled with sorrow because he had great wealth. He had many possessions. He had felt that his whole life had prepared him for that moment. And Jesus loved him so much, but there was one thing that had his heart, and he wasn't willing to let it go. Okay. So we're going to pull out of the big picture. How's your heart doing so far? How are we doing? Are we in the story together? I want to hit slow-mo on the story now, okay? We're going to hit slow motion. Like a coach breaking down game film, we're going to look at the movements, okay? Slow motion. And I want to walk through this story and bring a little more a little more insight. The first thing is that it says the young man ran to Jesus. Man, can we just bless this young man for a second and say, how many of us have such joy to run to Jesus? He, he legitimately wanted to know this guy and he wanted to know what was in his heart and what he thought. And not only did he run to Jesus, but but he took a posture. He decided to physically make himself lower. There was, there was respect, there was, there was honor, there was reverence as he had to look up at the rabbi. And he knew there was something in this teacher that was good. Good teacher. What do I do to inherit eternal life? There was was a reverence, but there was also an honor that he was good. He was maybe good at what he did. He had authority, and maybe he even knew he was good in his character. I don't know, but he called him good. Now, if we're in slow motion, I need to freeze frame on eternal life And bring us a little bit into the Jewish context. What this man was not saying is, what works do I do to get myself to heaven? The word eternal life wasn't in the Jewish concept describing a disembodied state where I float around with Jesus in heaven. That wasn't what this guy was saying. How can I be saved by doing something? Many have translated that way. He he, he just, he's Jewish. He's not thinking that. He's saying, to get into the Jewish mind, there's a present age, and in this age, there's damage and injustice and oppression, and there's those ruling over us, making our lives terrible. That's what this age looks like. But there's an age to come. There's an age that's coming in which God will be king. And our enemies will be put under his feet. And there will be peace and shalom. And I want to know, how do I inherit that age to come? How do I enter into that kingdom reality? So he's asking. Now, if we can, again, just bless the young man for a second we would say he actually dared to ask a vulnerable question to the rabbi. He put himself in the lower position and was prepared to hear an answer. Now as we're all in this 40 day wilderness, I wanna know could we run to Jesus and would we not just run to him but lower ourselves and potentially Ask a vulnerable question in which we want to hear the answer. I find myself somehow in that moment in the middle of these 40 days. Would I be willing to ask a question of Jesus that makes me the vulnerable one? And would I be willing to hear what he had to say? Jesus defines for us in John 17 what eternal life is. He says this, John 17, 3, this is eternal life. Did anyone ever want to know what it is? Here's the definition. This is eternal life, John 17, 3, to know, not head knowledge, but intimate knowing, like knowing your spouse, to know the one true God and Jesus Christ to whom he sent which means if you know the one true God and you know Jesus Christ whom he sent, eternal life has already begun with you. It's not heaven in a disembodied state one one day. Right now, you know God and eternal life has begun. That's the reality that Jesus is saying. This is eternal life, to know the one true God. So this is how we would define it. Jesus is now gonna speak back to him. This is a profound moment. And he speaks back to them, saying, why do you call me good? God alone is good. I mean, it's almost to suggest to the young man, have you thought about who you're talking to? Are you saying that I'm God? And what Are you resting in? Are you resting in God, whom you're calling good? Are you asking God the question? Who are you asking the question? And what is going on within you? Jesus has a way of doing a lot with a little. He doesn't have to say a lot. In fact, we're about to watch one of the most brilliant discourses on the Ten Commandments that's ever existed. But he puts a seed... To somehow say, do you know who you're talking to? Have you thought about it? In other words, are you calling me good in the way that good is supposed to be used? Because that would entirely belong to God. But then he does something brilliant. He goes after half, right down the middle of the great commandments. Five of them. And guess what they are? They're the big, bad behaviors. They're the easy ones to spot. Like, growing up, it'd be a good idea if you didn't kill anybody. Don't lie. It creates mistrust. Don't dishonor and disrespect your parents. It'd be a really good idea if you didn't go to your neighbor's wife or husband and steal them away. Don't pretend to be something you're not. So Jesus goes after what we would call the behavioral sins. And oh, the religious spirit loves this. So can you see the young man? He's going on his knees, yes, I'm in, I did it, I don't think I killed anybody? No, I didn't kill anyone. I've never lied from my youth. I don't know if he was lying in that moment. <laughs> I've kept all these things. I'm good. I mean, do we not resonate with this? Somehow to, to like justify ourselves, somehow we have this righteousness that is is our approval before the Father. We've, we've, we've gone to church, we've done the deal, we're good. The outward behaviors. And Jesus is about to unfold the heart of the Ten Commandments behind and before the behaviors of the Ten Commandments. But this guy thinks he's passed the test. Now catch this. This is the moment we have to stop that I repeated over and over. Jesus looked at him and loved him. Jesus looked at you and loved you. Jesus is about to ask for the thing that has a hold of his heart. But when he asks for the thing that has a hold of his heart, he doesn't do it to be cruel. He doesn't do it so the guy knows he's a big, fat Christian failure. He loves us. When he asks, you have to know. You have to look in his eyes. And you have to know, I love you. And my jealousy is pure. My jealousy is to give you the best. And anything that I will take from you is only, only what diminished you in the first place. It's only what damaged you. I promise I won't take anything that is actually your best. He loved him. Now watch how masterful Jesus is now in this movement. In one short sentence, he takes all that he forgot to include intentionally from the Ten Commandments and he wraps it all up into one beautiful moment. One thing you lack. Does that sound familiar to anywhere else in the scripture? Psalm 27.4. Can you hear the Psalmist David saying, one thing I desire, this is what I seek, to dwell in the house of God all the days of my life, to gaze upon your beauty, to inquire in your temple, my one thing is you, God. Can you you hear Jesus' words with Martha and Mary? Martha, you're anxious for so many things, but. One thing is necessary. And what does Jesus say to this poor young man? You lack one thing. You lack the one thing. But he loved him. So, can you see Jesus' excitement as this man is hanging on the teetering edge of his life? He loved him. He's like, I want you to make it, buddy. I want you to make it, man. Here you go. I'm about to throw this out. You see, all that you possess has possessed you. It's got a hold of your heart. And so here's the deal. Just give it up and give it to the poor. And now follow the cloud. Come on. Come follow me. I mean, you can almost hear Adele singing. We could have had it all. Rolling in the deep. I mean, Jesus wants us. This guy is hanging. If we could only see what we were getting, you're like, you're outside of the story and you're like right behind the door. If you'll just open the door, it's everything you ever dreamed of, man. Everything you ever wanted. If you'll just uh, turn that doorknob and walk through that door, if you could just see it. And it says he lost his heart and he walked the other direction. We're talking about this guy almost got to be one of the disciples. He was there. He was right on the threshold. What had a hold of him that he could not see the beauty of this man? Yeah. Everything was his. Jesus was saying, you can have it all. You can have it all. But. It, He's too humble to scream like I am, so he's just hanging it out there, waiting on the voluntary choice of love. He's just waiting, like, can you see it? How many times in my life, man, I couldn't see the worth of Jesus. I couldn't see it, and so I made the choice to walk the other way. Could've had it all. The the thing that had a hold of him is a little cute word, four letters, and it's idol. It was an idol. What is idolatry? I want to, I want to read this, this phrase, Timothy Keller, Counterfeit Gods. If you want to go deeper into this whole thought, I would recommend this book. What is an idol? It's anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. What is an idol? It's what has your heart more than God. Here's the problem with idols. We read them throughout all the Old Testament, and we go, man, it's like everywhere. It's wood and stone and statue. You see, the genius of Jesus in that moment when he asked that question is he took all the other commandments that he left out, which was put God first, have no idols. In other words, put God first. What do you love more than God? Idols. What do you worship more than God? Sabbath. What do you rest in more than God? covetousness? What do you desire more than God? And he took all the rest of the commandments with one question. He unfolded the rest of the 10 commandments and said, is the center of your heart God? Because that is what's behind all the behavioral big guys. Is there anything you love more than God, desire more than God, worship more than God? Is there anything that is your identity more than God? This is idolatry. But when Jesus looks at you and asks this question, is he there to get you to fail or can you see love? Can you see the man who only wants the best for you? This is what idolatry is. It's what identifies you, it's an unreliable righteousness. Something that I have clung to that somehow. I feel, makes me approving before God. It's a pseudo-salvation. And here's the problem about these idols. They're subconscious and insidious. In other words, we, we don't often, maybe we look at the big bad behaviors, but it's hard to know our hearts. None of us goes out looking for these things to worship. Like the rich young ruler, most of us thinks like, we did it all, Jesus. And he goes, yeah, but it's your heart that I'm after. I'm going deeper than the behaviors. I'm taking you to a deeper place. I think these things have been creeping up on us since the garden, you know? the Garden of Eden. Because before there was a a statue to worship or a stone to worship or a carved image or a golden calf, there was the knowledge of good and evil, that in our own eyes we would be God, that we would rely and trust on ourselves. And it was an ideology that first hooked our hearts more than it was something physical. He's a jealous God of great love and he's inviting us. I actually wondered, is idolatry a New Testament concept? I don't know if any of you have ever wondered about that. I was pleased and frightened to know it is a New Testament concept. I want to read two, go, go one more and then I'll go back to that. 1 John 5.21 says, Dear children, keep yourselves from idolatry. 1 Corinthians 10, 14. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. Do you catch the spirit of the New Testament writer? It's the same spirit Jesus looked at that man with and said, oh, dear beloved child, if you only knew who you were, you wouldn't let that grip your heart. Keep yourself from that thing that's got a hold of you because you're a child. You don't need that. Or, dear friend, do you feel the connection? Run away from that counterfeit God that has a hold of you. Run the other way. Flee away from it. If you go back one, this quote really grabbed me. Tim Keller again. Our hearts are idol-making factories. They make good gifts from God, ultimate in our lives, thereby replacing God in our affections. This is what's so tricky about these darn idols. Is there actually good things? Augustine said, and I I heard this from Tim Keller, Augustine said in Confessions that sin is disordered love. Sin is disordered love. It's taking something we could love and putting it in the wrong order. It's taking something the Creator made and loving it more than the Creator who made it. It's distorting. I remember this so clearly because I had a 300 page journal of every single day what me and my God did. And what my God looked like, and what my God wore, and how my God and I talked together, and where my me and my God went to, and how I felt when I was with my God, and that whole three hundred page journal was about a girl. When I was in high school. And here's the really sucky thing about idols: they always and forever break your heart because they cannot deliver on what they were never created to be. They will never satisfy you. Oh, romantic love, what a good thing until it is worshipped and then it turns on you and destroys you. I will never forget the first word I heard from the living God. You've tasted the world's love, Adam, and it broke your heart. What else could a 17-year-old girl do who I made God? What else? How could she bear the full intensity? I mean, look at me. I'm a freaking mess of intensity. Imagine all of my passion poured into her, leached upon her in worship. I mean, full, adorning, idol worship. 300 pages, what she wore every day, where we went, how I felt. I mean, all of my romantic inclination poured out with such sacrifice and devotion. There was a moment I took her hand and put it on my heart. Yes, little weepy Hallmark moment, 17-year-old Adam Cox. And I said, you have my heart. Be careful. If you've ever had a salvation moment with a false god, that's the moment. You think we don't worship? Everyone in every high-rise all around us is worshiping, and they're worshiping day and night. Whatever they think brings them fulfillment identity, satisfaction, and we are worshiping our false gods, and they are where we have put our love, but they can't hold our love, and they will disappoint us, fail us, and they will break our hearts. But then God said to little Adam Cox, he said, don't worry, now you're gonna taste my love, and I'm never gonna And he never has for 21 years, not a moment, not a second, and he can handle all my mess and all my love and all my intensity and all my passion. Why? Because it was created for his heart. I can give him everything I am and he can handle it. All my junk, all my sin, all my mess. Why? Because he's the true God. You see, flip the script. Who's really the rich young ruler? jesus is the rich young ruler right he had everything he had everything and he goes i'm going to give all my possessions all of my value all of my worth and i'm going to pour it out on the cross until i'm dead and i'm going to store my treasure where up in heaven with my father so when he's looking at this man he's looking at it himself and he's going Dude, you're a king, you're a ruler, you're rich, and so am I, but I'm about to dump it all out that the whole world can have me. Just just pour it out. Just give me the idol. Just give me the idol, and you can follow me. If we only knew what was waiting, if we gave it all, if we only knew. I had a whole list of idols here. I don't even know if it's appropriate. I mean, just, it's basically anything. You can just worship anything. Can I confess one of my big, nasty idols to you? Man, my whole life, success to win. A lot more shook me than giving up that building, which hurt, was the feeling that I was a failure. Not just gonna fail, but everything was going to fail to the point that I was a failure. I cannot tell you how many times I stood before the Lord and just wept, thinking I'm a total failure. An idol is something that brings the very meaning to your life, and were it to be taken away from you, you wondered if you wanted to even go on. And for me, all my life, that's been success. And if you were to say, so what is it? I'd be like... I don't even know. It's just this carrot out there that I can never seem to to grasp to be successful. And I've leveraged everything towards that. Thankfully, God is saving me from this idol. He's removing it out of my heart. I remember driving down the road one time and I was complaining, I was going, God, like when are we gonna see breakthrough? Do you realize you can even take the promises of God and turn them into idols that you worship more than God himself? I have promises to see a city meet Jesus, but man, does that get nasty when it's now in my control for success if it identifies me and gives me my identity. So I'm going down the road and I'm whining to God and God says, Adam, you're not gonna be happier when all these people come to faith. You're just gonna have more problems. And then he said, and if you're not happy in me now, you will never be happy in me in any other thing. Because not one word, not self, success, security, possession, sex, image, family, work, comfort, food, entertainment, politics, national identity, or any other thing under the sun can satisfy your heart. They were all created to be good things, but not ultimate things. They are good things if they are ordered in your love. But they cannot be worshiped. They cannot be pursued. And so when he looks at that young man with such love, he goes, ah, there's one thing. There's one thing that has your heart above the one thing you were created for, and that's me. Would you give it to me? And he did it because he loved him. I don't know how to say this more, but when you look in his eyes, do you see that he loves you? That he loves you. That's the gospel. He loves you. He wants the best for you to come follow him and be with him and know him. And so these are really convicting to me. Like, if you put all your aspirations for peace and economic flourishing and all the problems of America to be solved through one of the bipartisan political parties, you've got to repent. If you listen to NPR or Fox News more than Jesus, you've got to let go of the idol because the kingdom of heaven comes through a king. It doesn't come through Republicans or, or Democrats. If you're more American in your identity than you are Jesus, then it may be an idol. If work is so connected to your identity that you're sacrificing your family, you may have been worshiping it. And we're committing just what they did in the Old Testament child sacrifice at the expense of a career that has become my righteousness unreliably. Because your work and doing well and you as the provider, it doesn't justify you before him. Only his bloody death justifies you. Only Jesus is your righteousness. So he says, give me the work and I can give it back to you as a gift. Entertainment, sexual fulfillment, image has been one that's caught me up. I am wrestling with this so much as God unfolds the city's story. I'm going, I care so much my whole life about what people think about me. My image, physically or my impression, it's an idol. But oh, He wants us to make it. So I'm wondering if we go right back to the beginning of that story. And there we are, say we're even the rich young ruler and we know what's right and we've heard the sermon and we're looking in his eyes and there is no denying he loves me right now in this moment. There is a fire in his eyes and he wants all of me. Can you look in his eyes? And I am not here in this moment to say, now give up one of these idols. Honestly, that's a whole journey. But we happen to be in 40 days, and I'm wondering if we can look back into those eyes of love, and we can ask Jesus a question. That's all I'm wondering, is if we can ask him a question. Is there anything that has my heart more than you? is there anything that has my heart more than you I'm going to invite you to stand we want to go into some a space of just worship but unless the lord's already made it plain this morning you know then give it to him quickly harden not your heart like just give it to him but i expect if it's really an idol You're going to have to sit in that moment of wrestle like that young man, and you're going to have to actually contemplate. Is there more in those eyes than what I love in my heart? Is there more in the future of knowing this king than what I've held on to for my identity? And some of us don't even know what those idols are. So when we ask the question, like the rich young ruler on our knees, we make ourselves vulnerable in 40 days of wilderness fasting to say, I don't even know my own heart, but if there's anything in my heart, anything at all that has my heart more than you, oh God, let my heart burn for you. Like, let that love come and burn it up. And I have to trust in that moment That he will only take what has damaged and diminished me and distorted me. He will take nothing but what has not been the best. And that is the great moment of trust. And I'm suggesting that just beyond that door, Jesus is saying, we could have it all. We could have it all. But I'm not going to make that choice for you. I just want to give a moment of physical response, and we're going to sing. But if you're willing to just ask this question, I want to do something physical with our bodies, and that is stand up and put both of our arms up. This is not before me or anyone else. And literally, all you're saying when you put your arms up is, I will ask you this question. (laughs) And if you don't want to do that, by all means, please do not do that. But if it's in your heart, in a genuine way, to go, I'm going to ask this question before you over the next several weeks. I'm going to ask you this question, and I'm going to allow you to show me whatever it is to me that you want to show me. I'm going to look into those eyes of love. We're going to spend the rest of the morning, sweet, we have time. We're going to spend the rest of the morning, we're going to sing. And I just encourage you to be intimately connected with the Lord who's in this room. I want to pray for us. Lord, I want to see those eyes of love. I want to see them every day till the day I meet you face to face and there is no more barrier. There is no more glass dimming. I want to see those eyes of love and I want nothing to shine in my eyes more than those eyes of fire. I want nothing to have my heart more than your love. And so, Lord, I'm asking you, if there's anything in my heart, anything that has my heart more than you, I am asking you to reveal it because I want to have it all with you just as you gave it all for me. We consecrate the rest of these this morning to you for you to come and hang out with, abide with, and speak to the ones you love in Jesus' name.